On and off the field, women in sports are inspiring and motivating others to be the best versions of themselves, rewriting the rules and changing the game. This is the On Her Turf podcast, hosted by Katherine Tappen. Welcome to the On Her Turf podcast. I'm Katherine Tappen. Thank you so much for joining us. Today we are chatting with Oksana Masters. Oksana is a two-time World Cup overall champion, eight-time Paralympic medalist, and 26-time multi-sport World Cup medalist. Welcome, Oksana. It's so nice to have you. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here and talk to you guys. So give us an idea right now of, of where you are, um, where you're living, and kind of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis right now. Um, so right now, actually, um, I'm in Colorado Springs doing a lot of recovery from some surgery I had before the 2018 Pyeongchang Winter Paralympic Games. Um, I injured my elbow, and then at the end of the Games, I had to go and have surgery. And then just last month, had another surgery and doing all my rehab here. But um, I usually split my time between Champaign, Illinois, and Bozeman, Montana, between cycling season and my biathlon and cross-country season. Beautiful areas of the country, I might add. Yeah. You are very, very fortunate to be out there and enjoying <laughs> the beautiful... It's a rough life well- I live, I know. Yes, no, it's Thank wonderful. Beautiful I mean, mountains. these beautiful spots of the country, right, mountains and, and good training grounds as well. So, um, all right, so that's where you are now, Oksana. Let's go all the way back to the beginning because I think, you know, the start of your story is just so compelling and so interesting. Um, you are Ukrainian-born and your birth parents... I am abandoned you at a Ukrainian orphanage where you lived until you were seven years old. So just tell me a little bit what you remember from living in that orphanage and your very early memories from that. Yeah, so like I, what I remember most is I, so I lived in three different orphanages when I was in Ukraine. And the one I remember the most is the one that I lived, that I was the last one. Um, I was there from five to seven and a half when I was adopted and it definitely it's a little insight of I guess like how it was when I came to America and I was adopted I was about to turn eight and I was 36 inches tall and weighed about 34 pounds and that's pretty wow. much a healthy three-year-old in the U.S. and I was that for all the way up until like I was nine years old and in toddler clothes through 10 years old and so the food was very limited we never really got a lot of food um, I remember that you knew when people were going to come and look to adopt kids because that would be the days you'd usually get served soup and lunch. Otherwise, it would just be bread. And you learn really quickly how to make that one piece of bread go a long way and chew really slow. And it was just really cold in my orphanage. So, um, like, when my mom came to adopt me, there was, like, it was normal for me, and I didn't realize that it wasn't normal everywhere else. But the pipes bursted, and it was freezing cold couldn't have any air conditioning so there was like an inch thick of ice on the floor that just was leaking from the radiators because it was so cold in there and there was no toys and so like the first time I ever saw a baby doll my mom gave me a baby doll when she came to Ukraine to get me and there's like this picture of me like what is this thing like I don't know what I'm supposed to do with it what does it do (laughs) no idea um yeah it was a very not now I guess knowing now it wasn't the ideal way to grow up but it was at that time my normal and I didn't know any other different way besides obviously pain's never good and that was not the normal thing. Uh, it's just incredible. I mean, the, the conditions alone unfathomable and what many of us can't even comprehend and what you've achieved and gotten to in your life to this point is is just a tremendous testament to you as a person. But what were, I mean, I know you mentioned these conditions and what it looked like, what it felt like to be there. What were your friendships like in the orphanage? Did you have any? I did. So, like, my orphanage was all, it was an orphanage, and it was also, like, the last one I was also known as a boarding school, where 
a lot of parents, um, and I was on the western part of Ukraine. I was so it was the part where you, Ukrainians speak only Ukrainian and not Russian. It was a very small, small village, like to the point I remember being in a horse and a wagon and getting around that way, not in a car. So there were a lot of kids. There were like over hundreds of kids there. But out of those hundreds, only seven were real true orphans that did not have any homes to go to. So the other kids, basically, if your parents didn't have the money to raise you, they would pay to the government to have their kids stay there and live there. And then they would come home on like holidays or any time that like those kind of days. But so the seven of us were really, really close. And I was very, very close. I had two friends, two little boys that were really close friends with me. And then um, my best friend who did not make it out of that orphanage, she ended up passing away there. It was, you like protected each other and looked out for each other. And it was, it was definitely like, my, that was the only family I had. And that was the only real concept I think of a family that I really understood because I never sure. had a mom or had a dad. I didn't know, understand what a mom's hug was or like anything like that. But I think like it's that friendship that I had from the orphanage that made me I guess drink for like having a mom and wanting a mom and just wanting a family and getting away from that situation but I always think about them too to this day like where they are they were adopted and um yeah yeah have you ever tried to reach out to them or been given the opportunity to maybe figure out where they are in this world when I first came to America I I communicated with them and wrote them letters and then somewhere along the way the letters just got lost and I didn't hear back from them I haven't heard from them at all or haven't really found them. I have found, not specifically them, but I have had some people reach out through social media like, hey, I remember you when we were in the orphanage. And it kind of threw me off. I'm like, whoa, because they were there as like through the boarding school program, but they went home and they were only there for like either like summer stuff or just to go to school there. And they were like, yeah, I remember you had <laughs> one person like send me and uh, like, and it was all through Google Translate, which is all really fun that, too. To try to figure out it is. That's, really I mean, it's unbelievable. Here. The positive power of social media, Oksana. <laughs> it's a really amazing tool because it can look, reconnect people from when you were like six years old. And sometimes it's good. And sometimes you get those people that from high school, and middle school, that think it's really fun to like post pictures back in those days. You're like, <laughs> that does not need to resource this. No, no, no. <laughs> so you were really surrounded in this orphanage. You were surrounded by your teammates at the time, the kids that you were friends with, the boys you mentioned, you know, without having a parent and without having that love and support of a family, they were your teammates, much like it's what you've made of your life and your world as well, being surrounded by your teammates. Yeah. I was actually talking to this with my mom and it's like, I'm very lucky because I have my sport, especially in cross-country skiing in Nordic, it's a very... It's a smaller team, but it's like such a family tight knit connection, and it's very rare to have that. It's amazing because like I went from having no really besides what my two best friends there, like no family and no one on the side to protect you and want the best for you and try and get you to be your best. And then I went from having that to like an amazing family, and then an amazing family within my sports family on top of that, and then the family that you have from like Team USA and the Youth Paralympics. 
I'm very, very lucky for sure. Uh-huh. You are blessed. With, yeah, with so many wonderful people in your life. You've mentioned her a number of times now, so I have to get to your mom, your adopted mom. You came to the United <laughs> States when you were adopted by her, Gay Masters, at age seven and a half. So what are your early memories? You talk about the doll, and she presented you with this item that you had no idea what it even was. What are some of your early <laughs> memories of being taken out of the orphanage and coming to this totally foreign land but having the love of this wonderful woman now in your life? Um, it was a little, it's interesting because I, I had a lot of things, but I think at that time I didn't really understand that that was my new home and that was going to be my new mom. Because I remember multiple, multiple times where people come in and tell you we're going to adopt you, we're going to give you, we're going to be your new mom and dad, and they never come back for you. And like when you're five and four, like you don't remember it, but when you're seven, you start to really remember things more. And it was kind of surreal to think like, oh my gosh, this is great. But I was in some ways thinking like, it wasn't going to be a permanent fix kind of thing. So don't get too attached at the same time. But I literally felt like Annie from the movie Annie, that little girl. Yeah, Daddy little orphan Annie, sure. And she's like, yeah, she like, she's carrying her because my mom carried me. I was so tiny that I just had a stroller or she carried me everywhere. And like, I was obsessed with light switches and how like it went on and off, on and off. And I was obsessed with stickers. I couldn't understand how that was sticking to a wall. And my first memories at Walmart, looking around at all the food and just wanting to touch everything and how bright and colorful everything was because we didn't have much electricity. Everything was super dark in my orphanage and there wasn't any colors on the wall. And I never saw the food besides what they gave you. And it was interesting. So, like, my mom didn't speak any Ukrainian. I didn't speak any English. So, like, the communication was really fun. Wow. Um, How did like, you communicate? Hand gestures. Hand gestures. Wow. And the hand gestures. And then we had, like, um, a translator. And then I also was able to read when I was in Ukrainian. And so my mom would look up. She had an English-Ukrainian dictionary. And she'd look up in the English side. And I would read it in the Ukrainian side. And then sometimes it would be, like, hand gestures where, like, one time. Um, I, so in Ukraine, I teach you or in my orphanage. You basically just got beat. If you cried or showed any emotion or if you were sad or anything. So you learn if you didn't get hit by... The workers there, you just sometimes the people, the other kids would just hate you too because if one person does it, everybody gets in trouble, kind of thing. So you learn really hard quickly not to cry or show emotion when you get when you're sick or if you get hurt. And I didn't cry for like the first couple <laughs> years when I first came to America, but like I was telling my mom I didn't feel good and I had a smile on my face. I felt like my head hurt, and my mom's like, "Oh, good, good." She didn't know what I was saying, and then I think I'm vomiting all over the floor. And she's like. <laughs> Oh, no, okay, if that's what you were trying to say. But yeah, so sometimes it'd be a hit and miss. It's quite a learning process. I mean, for you to adapt to this lifestyle here, for your mom to try and understand the simplest things that are going on in your life, both physically and mentally. I mean, it's amazing that, that I mean, you speak perfect English. You have no accent. I mean, you definitely learned the <laughs> right way along the way. What, what is your mom like? What Describe her as a person. Oh, my gosh. My mom is absolutely incredible, and she's, a fighter for sure. Um, we could not be any more opposites. My mom is definitely more of a bookworm. She could read probably three books in one day and just loves reading. And she's so smart. So she's a professor at University of Louisville um, for a graduate program for speech pathology. And she has her own private practice. And 
She's just such an amazing, so she raised me single parent. She adopted me single parent and she literally had to fight so hard because at that time when she was adopting me, it was still kind of frowned upon to adopt somebody single parent and not have a male or be questioned like, why aren't you married? And then had to be questioned of why she wasn't married or whatever. And my mom is the kind of person that is extremely determined when she wants something. She will definitely make it happen regardless how long it takes. When she started to adopt me and decided she wanted to adopt me, she didn't want a seven-year-old girl. She wanted a baby at first. And then she saw my picture and she was like, this is, this is my child. And then um, Ukraine ended up actually shutting down the adoption agencies and all foreign adoptions. And her agency was telling her to go to Russia. She can adopt a baby from Russia in two weeks and have it. And you can have your baby that you wanted. And you don't know when Ukraine's going to open, reopen the adoptions again. And she was stubborn. She said, no, that's my daughter. She fought for me. It ended up taking two years for the adoption ban to be lifted. And I ended up being the first American child adopted after that ban. And that whole entire time, my mom did not give up. She had multiple people telling her to give up on me and just move on. It's a lost cause. She's probably not going to be even making it at that time. By the time it opens up, like, again, she might not even be alive, whatever. So she's very determined and very resilient and a sweet person. She's the kind of person, too, that if you're walking off a street and you need a shirt, She'll give you the shirt off her back. And if it's not your favorite color, she'll find your favorite color and give you that shirt. Like, wow. She just puts everyone first before I feel like herself sometimes. I mean, the way you've described her is is incredible. She just sounds like a remarkable, strong woman. She, you know, she also had to make some tough decisions with you with regards to, you know, the physical surgeries that you had to endure. So, you know, you were born with birth defects as a direct cause of the nuclear accident at Chernobyl, which was nearly three years before you were born. You had these complications. Yeah. So your right leg is amputated at the age of nine, your left leg at the age of 12. Over time, those decisions were made by your mom. She had to make that tough choice once she brought you to the United States because your legs were not able to bear the weight on them. So here she is, this strong. Talk to me about what she did and the process for her to make those decisions, to have those procedures done for you. The first surgery, it was hard. She had to make it. She had to make a decision to, like, amputate my leg. And the second one for the right leg, it was I had to make a decision when I was around that age to um, amputate, whenever I was ready to amputate that leg. And she knew by looking at me, she had a lot of doctors before she even came to adopt me that had my pictures. She had um, doctors look and see what specifically I would need to be done because it was it was a lot of medical issues I had that was very visible to my legs and my hands. So she knew a little bit already of what I was going to have to do and what she was going to ultimately have to do. And when I came over here, she was the one who decided that instead of adopting me and right away amputating my legs, to give me a year to kind of get used to my home, understand what a family, understand what a mom is, understand what a mom's love is, and to kind of get healthy and understand what it means to have an amputation. And to also, because we didn't speak any, we didn't communicate languages, so she didn't want to just take me away from what was my home and then take off my body part at the same time and then just feel like, because she didn't think that was a good way to build trust, which is very accurate. And I didn't realize in Ukraine, they told me, your mom's going to get you a whole new leg. It's going to be a new real leg. It's going to be perfect. And so in my mind, I thought I was going to be swapping out legs 
from someone else's leg and my leg, and I was going to get a normal walking leg, but it was not going to be gone forever. But then, obviously, uh, when I was around nine, it came time where cause of the amputations was from radiation, and what the radiation did was I was born without the weight-bearing bone, tibia hemimilia, I think, um, is what the science, like, doctor term was. And the night before the amputation, I mean, we, we talked about it leading up to it. And the night before the amputation, she told me, like, what was going to happen? I was going to get a new leg. I said goodbye to my little leg because it was six inches shorter than my other one. So I literally slept holding onto my leg when I was a kid. Like, my leg was my little baby kind of thing. And before any of my huge major surgeries, my mom would go out of her way to make a Ukrainian meal or something associated with Ukraine because I still, um, even though there were bad things that happened there, it was my home and I missed it a lot still. And um, it was very comforting whenever I had specific smells or food flavors. So she would always go and make a home-cooked meal from of Ukrainian origin and one in and had my first leg amputated. And I think for her, I, as a kid, you're really resilient and you just want to get back to what you were doing. And once I understood it wasn't there, I was nine. And I was like, okay, whatever. I didn't realize the magnitude of losing my leg, what it was. I think she took it really, really hard. And I can't imagine being in her position and having to make the decision, like I'm responsible for making a decision to amputate my child's leg, knowing that there will be things that I'll be limited in doing in life, but it's quality over quantity kind of situation of quality of life. But yeah. And then when I was around 13, I had to make a decision of when I was ready to amputate my leg. And that was a lot harder because growing up with that one leg above the knee, amputated, I knew how much I couldn't do without my leg, even though it didn't hurt as bad. I knew that I couldn't jump anymore. I couldn't run anymore. There's certain things that just missing your feet and knees is very different than if you're just missing like a foot kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I finally, eventually, when the pain got really, really hard, told my mom, I'm ready. I'm ready to amputate my leg. Just make the call, make the appointment. And then we did. That was a hard amputation because I was already 13. I was moving from Buffalo, New York to Kentucky, so I had to make new friends again and had to get accustomed to a new environment. And the only reason why I said I'm ready to amputate my leg is because I asked the doctor if he could promise me if he could save my knee because with my knee, I would be able to do a little more with it. And he said, yes, the day of the surgery, I get in and get on the happy juice. And he Mm -hmm. basically walks in and says, unfortunately, looking at the x-rays one more time, we're going to have to go above the knee. And I don't remember that. I gave consent. I was like, okay, whatever. And then um, because at Children's Hospital, apparently you're your own consent at that point. And I will never forget the day I woke up after the surgery and I got up and both of my legs were amputated at the same height. And you kind of like, when you're missing your legs, I was top heavy, so I couldn't I couldn't sit up, but I just saw my legs up in the air and I was just devastated. And there were so many complications with that surgery because it was an epidural. The epidural ended up shifting and it numbed the wrong leg that was amputated when I was nine. And I felt everything that was when I was the one that was just amputated. And because it was a last minute decision, um, he didn't leave enough skin to close the suture. So I had to end up being in the hospital for about six to seven months on a wound back stuck to a bed. And that was a huge transition and just mentally very challenging to adjust to. As a 13-year-old girl where, like, if you have a pimple on your face, it's the end of the world, let alone missing two legs now. 
I mean, Oksana, just hearing you tell these stories, I really, I, I just cannot, my jaw is dropping. I'm sure anybody listening is going to feel the same way. What you have had to overcome and these these stories that you're sharing are completely unbelievable. Um, it's it's amazing that you have the perspective you do and the way you are sharing it with such positivity and assuredness of kind of where you've come since then, I'm sure helps. But um, so much, so many challenges you had to endure at such a young age. Um, and I know your mother is proud of you and you've proved everybody wrong with all of this you had to endure. You still go on to win gold medals. Uh, you found sports and you started with rowing is what I understand, right? You joined the U S rowing Paralympic yeah. team in 2011. You went on to win the bronze medal and then in Lund 2012 uh, just had an unbelievable performance there. What, what exactly, what kind of confidence did you get once you found sports and you found this niche of now you've got something to hold on to and to grasp onto? Like how did sports help you? Oh my gosh. So this is, so for me, it's very interesting because I got into, I was always very active and I feel like it was just almost at the right place, right time that I got into sports. Um, because it was when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky and it was for the Louisville adaptive rowing clubs there. And my mom and a couple of people were asking like, Hey, you should come out and try adapted rowing, try adapted rowing. And at that time I didn't want to do adapted rowing because it was called adapted rowing. And I felt like I don't want to be labeled to be, limited to only do adapted stuff just because I'm missing my legs and I wanted to play volleyball with my friends in middle school and high school and finally my mom kept pursuing and asking and I'm like okay okay I'll go out and just try it one Saturday I'll see if I like it and then the minute I got on the water I fell in love with it and it was just that moment of like this is I'm at the right place I'm like this is where I'm meant to be kind of thing and it gradually turned into just going. So I stuck with it and I fell in love with it and went out one Saturday every week. And for me, it was, I think everything happens for a reason and the timing of it was just perfect because of my amputation and the frustrations I was having with it and adjusting to my new body and liking what I saw. And then also at the same time, around 13 to 16, I was starting to have a lot of memories coming back from Ukraine that I suppressed that I did not like to talk about and did not like to really acknowledge things happen because then it just makes it seem like it's more real and it did happen. And so for me, sports was a way, instead of talking about it, it was an outlet for me of all the pain, all the fear, all the frustrations and anger that I had towards a lot of stuff from the orphanage to to being missing my legs and not feeling like I really belonged anywhere. And for me, rowing was something that the minute the oars were in the water and I just pulled as hard as I could, it was releasing a lot of that stuff without having to verbalize it. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways, that's why I think I've been able to achieve what I have in sports in, in numerous different types of sports, because I kind of got into it not like, I'm going to be a gold medalist, I'm going to do this and this and this, because I had no idea at that time that I could be an elite level athlete, because I've never heard of the Paralympics at that time and stuff when I first got into rowing. And so it was just therapy for me. And I, I truly fell in love with the sport. I truly fell in love with everything that goes around waking up early in the morning and having that dedication of... You're responsible for you, but you're also responsible for your coach that's making the time to come out there to help you. And I, oh my gosh, I cannot imagine my life without sports at all. We can't imagine without watching you in sports because it's just been so fun to see your success and all the accomplishments you've had and to represent USA and you're just amazing. Have you been back to to the Ukraine since you left the orphanage? I have been back, um, but on a diplomatic reason for, but all the way in Kiev, it was on the eastern Ukraine. 
and through the Embassy of U.S. and the America House in Kiev, um, they invited me there for two reasons. One, because I think a big problem that's happening in Ukraine right now is people don't want to adopt within Ukraine. They are going out of the country to adopt and bringing kids in. And there's so many kids in Ukraine, just like there are here in the U.S., that need adoption and need home. But in Ukraine, if they adopt within Ukraine, then it's looked down upon because children are like the prized possession of Ukraine. And so there's no such thing as no child without a home kind of thing in a lot of people's mentality. So I visited a couple different orphanages there and I talked with the ombudsman of adoption for Ukraine kids there and kind of shared my story of how adoption is a good thing and it can save a lot of kids' lives, and that even if you adopt someone with a disability, there are opportunities for them that's not to not limit, just see like something physical and see like, oh my God, what they can't do and just realize mm-hmm. the opportunities that there are there. They just have to be exposed to them and those doors open to them. And then the other side was it was during the time where the conflict between Ukraine and Russia were happening. I mean, they're still happening, but um, a lot of their military men were coming back injured. And they don't have, like it was around the same time that it was the 25th ADA Act anniversary of the 20, of the ADA Act, right, that we have here in America, that they don't have in Ukraine. And so they don't have ruled laws where it has to have an elevator in a building or it has to have a curb cut out or a ramp or things like that. So when I went to the military hospital, I went up two flights of stairs there, which you would think like, oh my gosh, how on earth is this a hospital? How on earth is there not an elevator in here? And kind of talked with a couple of the military guys there who just had their legs amputated or are now in wheelchairs and kind of took my leg off and passed it on the room. I think their faces turned white when I first did it, but then they were like, oh, this is so cool. To kind of like show them that there are opportunities. You're not just because you're missing a leg or if you're missing your sight or hearing or you're in a wheelchair now, like your life is not over. You're <laughs> There's so much more to live for. And that I was just one example of the positive of what is going to happen and the new normal and the transition that and to kind of help the culture within Ukrainians to accept people with disabilities because it's still very backwards there than where we are in the U.S. and kind of help encourage the community and everyone to make it more accessible so where people with disability or people with prosthetics and wheelchairs or anything can be part of the community by accessorizing it. What's so impressive to me, Oksana, is you are a lead by example type of person. I mean, you you put your money where your mouth is. You're going back to your country. You're speaking with people who have similar disabilities to you. You're showing them, I mean, in a way, providing humor of, of you know, here, here's my leg. You This is going to be you too one day and everything's going to be okay. I mean, that's that's an incredible way to, to connect with another human crazy. being. You know, do you have a piece yeah. of, do you, do you share pieces of advice as well? Like what is your number one message in addition to all this hands-on work that you do is there something that you like to share with people as well yeah so like something specifically for I feel like young girls because I never had this really and just anybody anybody for people but to not let anyone's opinions and what they think of you determine of what how you view yourself in the mirror or determine what you think you're possible of just from one person's comment about you and their opinion Because my biggest thing and my biggest motivator is girls in sports and girls in general. Because when I was going through my amputations, I never had an example of someone that is 
missing a leg. So I was terrified. I literally thought my life was over and there was nothing I could do. And I was going to be the ugliest person in the world now because I have legs. But it's only because I never saw anyone like me that I could associate with. I never saw someone like me that was successful and beautiful. And then I never saw someone like me that was wearing Team USA and representing their country. And for me, seeing is believing. And so once you see more people that for me, like the way I view prosthetics or wheelchair, it's nothing different than just wearing high heels versus flat heels or blonde hair versus brown hair. It's just an accessory, but it's how society views it. And I think like that's my biggest thing is to hopefully people realize is that to not let anyone preconceive like notions of what you think you're capable of or possible of determine that within yourself, because that's where the limitations are going to start. And there's nothing more beautiful than someone that's more confident in themselves and in their body. What an amazing message. No, no, you're that's spot on. I mean, it's just I, I want to talk to you forever, but I know we only have a little bit of time with you. Let me get to something super fun. On September 21st, you posted a video on your Twitter account that went absolutely viral. It was your emotional oh and such genuine response to the U.S. Olympic Committee voting in favor of giving Paralympians the same medal bonuses as Olympians. I mean, this was a major victory for Paralympic athletes. What message did this decision sent to you and your fellow athletes, Oksana? Oh my gosh. I mean, obviously it's amazing to have that equal pay as your teammates of the Olympic side. But for me, it was just more like there's so many people in, in around the world in the Paralympics that think the U.S. Paralympic athletes get this, this incredible support, incredible funding through their government and don't realize that the U.S. Olympic Committee and U.S. Paralympics are not government-funded organization. It's all based on donations only. And when this finally passed, and I know people, so many Paralympians before me have been fighting for this and paving the way, and I'm just in a generation where it finally happened. And to be honest, I had no idea it was going to happen in my time of competition at all. But it's just more that the fact, not just about the money, but the fact that my own country that I compete for and I commit the same amount of time and dedication and have the same kind of sacrifices as every single Team USA athlete, Olympic or Paralympic, is being recognized at the same level as Olympic athletes. And the Paralympic movement has been growing around the world, but for this to happen in my own country and in U.S. OC that's making this decision and fighting for it just shows that they're finally seeing the value and that same worth that Olympians bring, that U.S. Paralympians bring. And the craziest part is we're, the, the, in L.A. 2028, the games are coming back to L.A. and back to the U.S. And that is what's crazy, thinking if there's somebody that is nine years old today that is just now getting in the sport, and in, by the time L.A. 2028 comes around, they're going to be able to represent their country. They're going to be able to be the best at what they do because they have that support from their country and be looked at the same and equal. And it's just absolutely incredible. And I had no idea the video was going to go viral like that. <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, it was your, it was so authentic and it was so you in a nutshell, but it was also, it, it, 
I think it brought also to the surface what had just happened. I mean, people who didn't know this decision is proof that Paralympians and the broader society is finally starting to recognize your efforts and your fellow teammates and those of you that represent the United States on a global scale. I mean, the fact that you posted that video, many people that maybe didn't know about this decision found out very quickly. And uh, it was just really special to see it. And I know you were nervous because you're like, I don't want to put an ugly cry on the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) No. So you put yourself out there oh, for God. all of us, and man, were we grateful because it was just the best, and it was so so fun to see your reaction. And we wish you the best of luck. What are your plans, you. Oksana? Are you? What's the goal for 2020? The goal I have someone finished business in hand cycling from Rio. I got fourth by a very little time, so um, <laughs> that's my goal. Is Rio or is Tokyo 2020, and then um, obviously the next winter cycle in Beijing 2022. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll probably be competing on my deathbed or something with IVs. <laughs> no, I don't think that's possible. I mean, just hearing your story, and <laughs> I don't think that's possible, Oksana. There's nothing that's ever going to hold you back. I mean, you are an incredible inspiration, a fighter, a warrior. You make this country so proud. So we wish you all the best in Tokyo and beyond and in Beijing, and we just look forward to cheering you on. Keep up the great work. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for coming <laughs> on. We'll chat with you hopefully down the road sometime, too. That'd be amazing. Thank you. We were just chatting with Oksana Masters, a two-time World Cup overall champion, eight-time Paralympic medalist, and 26-time multi-sport World Cup medalist. You can download the On Her Turf podcast on the Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Let us know what you think. We want to hear from you, so be sure to chime in. And also, you can follow us on Instagram at On Her Turf. Have a great rest of your day, and be sure to join us next time for the On Her Turf podcast.